If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Deuteronomy. I have had several people already ask me if there was a typo, if we were just doing the first three verses, and no, we are doing three chapters today. So uh, we will move fairly quickly. We're not going to read all of the three chapters. We're not going to uh, linger at every single verb, um, but we will be going through all three of these chapters today. We talked last week in a a fairly, I would say brief, but that would be a lie, a very lengthy introduction to the book of Deuteronomy that there were basically two themes that that sort of wove their way through this book. The one theme which we will not get to today is about Moses doing everything he can to explain the law to the people. And parallel to that, at the same time that he is doing that, the overarching theme of the book of Deuteronomy is that God's promises are true and can be trusted, that he has shown himself trustworthy to those things. Even though the people may fail, even though the curses may come, God will be good to his promises. He will keep his word. And today in the first three chapters, as we look through these chapters, you're going to find that there is basically simply a historical reconstruction for us. This is what happened to Israel after they were led out of the land of Egypt. So a lot of people look at this and say, this is building historical context for the people as they stand outside of the land, ready to go into the land. This is simply providing context as to why the people are here. But again, if the Pentateuch is one book, we've already had that historical prologue. The people don't need that again, and frankly, neither do we. No, I I think that this historical dialogue here, or monologue as it were, this historical reconstruction exists for us, not simply to tell us what has happened, but to show us why that has happened. It's a much more important thing. There's no better way to see that this is not just a historical reconstruction than to realize that the whole 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is summed up in about three verses. Okay? Clearly, Moses is not intent on giving us everything that happened. That's what the other books are for. But this is specifically to show us how God's promise always, always comes true and how he is leading his people to understand those promises. Before we begin, I do want to mention something. Um, Simply to talk about when we come to interpret a book like Deuteronomy, why we interpret it the way we do in light of what Jesus Christ has done. Because we are not coming here to read the book of Deuteronomy as a third century BC Jew might have done. We are not going to read it the same way that Isaiah read it. As much as the way Isaiah read it was true and good, we affirm that. But we now stand on the other side of history. We stand on the other side of the cross. And so we would read this in a much different way than Isaiah would, or even that Moses might have thought of it. The nature of the relationship between what Israel is going through and between what we go through is actually fairly similar. Now, different historical circumstances and different goals, but the the point of all of it is the same. Israel is to be faithful to the word of God. They are to trust in him in all that they do. And where they break commands, they are breaking faith with him. Now, it is true that Israel will ultimately break faith with him because they will not be able to keep the commands. The curses will fall upon them and that we don't have that. Jesus has kept all of the laws and regulations for us. So we are not in the same position as Israel. We will not fail because Jesus has already won. There is nothing to fail for us. 
he has already won promise. He has already won the promise, and he has already won the victory over all that would stand in our way. Nevertheless, the kingdom is not fully here. Even in the resurrection, as Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, that resurrection, that first fruits, has not blossomed into an entire harvest yet. And so we await the kingdom of God. And as we do so, we stand only, finally, on the promise of what the word has for us. That promise is sealed and secured in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we still await the promise of God to come to fruition. And so we, much like Israel, stand outside of the kingdom waiting for it to come. While it is already here, we wait for a fuller demonstration of it. And so we are able to read this and to understand that our situation is their situation and their situation is our situation. We stand next to them while knowing that we stand in a much better position than they do. So what we want to do is to remind ourselves of the promise of God and to encourage one another as Moses is doing to the people that God's promises will come true. We do this by remembering here because it's history, because Moses is looking back on it, there is certainly memory that should play playing part in how we approach this text. And so we remember, first, we remember the kept promises of God. We remember the kept promises of God. Moses begins his talk to the Israelites, this sermon to the Israelites, in verse 9 by saying, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you in your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between them, between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. It's an odd way to start. He doesn't start with the exodus from Israel or excuse me, from ex- the exodus from Egypt. He doesn't start with Israel's failure. He doesn't start with the wanderings. Instead, he starts with the appointment of people to positions of authority. This is something that we even read about today in our Sunday school. This is Exodus chapter 18. Moses, having brought the people out into the promise land, looks out and he says, yeah, it's too much. And Jethro comes to him and says, why are you burdening yourself like this? Appoint people. The whole point of mentioning this is actually said right away in verse 10 and verse 11. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now again, because the Pentateuch is one book, that ought to remind us pretty fervently of one passage in particular, Exodus 15. 
or excuse me, not Exodus 15. Maybe it reminds you of Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses, but it's actually Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, Moses, Moses wasn't in Genesis 15. We're having, we're having technical difficulties here today. It's the mic, I promise you. Um, in Genesis 15, Abram is concerned about the promise that God has given to him in chapter 12. In chapter 12, the promise of God came to him that I will bless you and I will multiply you and I will make you a great nation. And now, three chapters later, Abram has gone out from his family and he has done what the Lord has asked him to and he looks around and he knows that part of that promise cannot possibly be true because I don't have an heir. He says, Eliezer of Damascus is a perfectly fine chap. I'm sure that he would make a good head of the household, but he's not mine. He's simply a servant for me. And as it stands right now, he's going to get everything. And so God says to him in verse 5 of chapter 15, God brings him outside of his tent and says to him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham comes out and he looks up at the stars and, and God says, if you look at the stars and you can tell how many there are in this desert place, he says, that is what your offspring will be. Now when we come to Deuteronomy, the very beginning, what does Moses do? He reminds the people that as soon as God started to bring you out of Egypt, you know what happened? You were too many for me because you are numerous as the stars of heaven. And he reiterates in verse 11, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised you. God has already begun to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, including the land. So if you go back to Exodus or to Genesis 15, we get these statements. As the sun was going down, in verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The purpose of the promise of God is not only that he would give Abram land, but that he would give him a multitude, that that multitude would go down to Egypt, but that he would bring them out of Egypt. The reminder that you were as numerous as the stars of heaven is a reminder that Genesis 15 has come true. It's a reminder that he's already brought you out of Egypt. There's only one task left, and that is to take the promised land. We are always to remember the kept promises of God. We are never called to blind faith and obedience. God has not spoken from heaven saying, trust in me and not given us demonstrations of his love. Before he ever asked the Israelites to trust in him, he called them out of the land. And from that point on, ever since the crossing of the Red Sea, there has always been an experience, there's always been an object, a miracle that was done for them that they can always fall back on and remember that God is good to us. He does miraculous things. He keeps his promises. Likewise, even more than they, we know that God keeps his promises if for no other reason 
that we are all here today because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Peter says in Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." There is a firmness in the promise of God that has come true in Jesus Christ. You know that you can trust in him because God has raised him from the dead. Friends, not only in your own individual lives where God has been faithful to you, but God has demonstrated once and for all his promise in Jesus Christ. And he has given a sign in the resurrection that his promises will always come true in him. Remember those kept promises of God. Secondly, You need to remember the righteous command of God. Remember the righteous command of God. There is a problem with promises. When we talk about promises, you'll often hear people say things like, you need to claim the promises of God. I really dislike that language. I don't like the language of claiming the promises of God. A much better word is that you are to trust the promises of God. Now, there's two errors that we can make when we talk about the promises of God, and we use the word claim The first error is, frankly, we don't often understand what the promises of God are really getting at. And so we can be mistaken when it comes to claiming what we actually should be claiming. Again, Jesus is the key example to this. The people knew that God had promised that Israel would be restored, that there would be a king that sat on the throne in Zion, that their enemies would be subdued under his feet, that he would reign over all of the world. That is amen and true, and it will come true in Jesus, but it didn't come true the way they thought. You can't simply claim promises. You can go to a passage like Isaiah 40, 31. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And you can say, I claim that. The problem is, what if, what if God is going to make that promise come true through your weakness, through your frailty, through your difficulties, through your pain, and through your suffering? There is no claiming of that. It is trusting in it that we need to do. While that is true, we can never, ever forget that God's promises come true not 
not in spite of us, not simply because he makes them come true, but oftentimes his promises come true because of what we do. God works in us to make his promises true. So here is what Moses continues to say to Israel. In verse 19, Then we sent out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send up men before us, that we may, they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up, and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me. And I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned, and went into the hill country, and came to the valley of Eskol, and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. The the spies come back and they've got a good report. The land is what God said it was. Remember, these people have never seen this land before, right? If you were to make a map of the world in their minds, that map is a little map of Egypt, a little bit of Saudi Arabia, and almost nothing else. They have never put their eyes on the promised land. And so they say, we have no idea what this land looks like. Let's send out spies so that they can come back and they can tell us. And the spies come back filled with their hands with fruit, and it is flowing with milk and honey, and they have a good report, but they also report back to them of the people there. Verse 26, Yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Yes, God had promised his people the land, but the people were to take the land. The promise that they were to rely on is not that God would do it unilaterally, but that they could be assured that through their work, God would bless the work of their hands, that they would take the land. But they didn't do it, Verse 27, you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord has hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. They said, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. They've had the promise, not only fulfilled amongst them, but God has been kind to them and generous to them. Not only did he lead them out of Egypt, but even in their wandering through the wilderness, which has already been described as terrifying, he provided for them every step of the way. He provided manna and he provided water. He provided a cloud by day and fire by night so that they might be led where they needed to go. The people have everything for them. They simply need to trust God that as they go, he will go before them. It is indeed all of God 
God himself will go and fight for you, but you've got to do it. And the people rebelled and they rejected what God has commanded from of them. There is then the same for us. It's good for us to do what it is that God has commanded us, and it's bad for us to not do what God commands for us to do. As parents, some time ago, through books and sermons and, and reading the Word of God and trying to think through how, how can we parent our children so that we're not simply making them into people who want to follow rules. We don't want our kids to simply be people who listen to people in authority tell them something and say, oh, okay, I'm supposed to follow that, as though we're making little legalists as they get older and then grace comes in somehow. Bree and I took a very specific road very early on in our parenting that said what we want to impress upon our kids is that Keeping the commands and doing obedience is a good thing, but it's a good thing not simply because we tell them so, but because it goes better for them if they do this. And so a refrain all the time that we tell our kids is, it is always better to obey. It's always better to obey. It is always bad to disobey. Everything will only get worse, okay? So if you want to fight and you want to kick and you want to claw, you can do that, but I'm telling you, it's going to be worse for you obey. It goes better for you. If you make a mistake, repent, come back, obey. There is grace and there is forgiveness. But if you kick and you fight, there is only more difficulty that comes to you. The people here have the promise of God to go into the land, and yet they rebel against him because they do not trust him, and then they double down on their mistake. In verse 41, then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight as the Lord com our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go into the hill country. The spies were right. It is a land of very tall and mighty warriors. You can't just waltz into the promised land. God has to go with you. You are not strong enough to do it on your own. But God has already told Moses, you turn the people around and you take them back south. They are not going to go into the promised land. If they try to go in now, they will be destroyed for I will not be with them. Even in discipline, it is better to listen to the voice of your God. Even when he is keeping from you that which he said he wants to give to you, in their sin, they refused and then in their sin again, they thought they could gain it. Even in discipline, we need to listen to the command of God. They were, of course, routed. God then swore in his anger that none of the men of that generation would enter into the promised land. None of the women of that generation would enter into the promised land. However, back in verse 39, as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Back to the terrifying wilderness they go. If you reject the command of God, it goes poorly for you. Therefore, we must always remember the righteous command of God. 
the promises of God are things that God works out for us. They are true and they are good, but nevertheless, God still commands of us things. We need to obey those commands. The two things go together. We should never think that they are separated from one another. We can turn to a book like the book of Philippians and see that God holds both of these things true, that God will do what he has promised to do, and at the same time, he expects for you to work for them as well. So the beginning of the book of Philippians, in Philippians 1.6, Paul writes this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, I know where you started from. I know that God grabbed your heart, and I know that God is working in you, and I know that there are problems amongst you, Philippians. I know that you do not have this mind, which is the mind of Christ, that you are unified in all things, but I am not, therefore, giving up on you because I know that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, no matter who you are, no matter where you started from. If you are a Christian, if the Spirit of God indwells you, that you will one day be brought where God wants you to be. So it is, it is a promise of God. It is something that God does. But Paul then, in a single chapter, can turn around and in chapter 2, verse 12, can say this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do it now. God will do it, so you are to do it. God has promised it. It will come true. So put your face down, strengthen yourself, and go through and work it out. You are to complete yourself while God himself is completing you. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God stands behind it, but it doesn't mean that it happens without your work and your effort. Remember the righteous command of God. Third, Remember the gracious discipline of God. Remember the gracious discipline of God. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes sin will adversely affect us even when it is not our fault. There are so many people in here who know that so well. They live their lives out knowing that other people's sin has had an ill effect on their own lives. We can see and think and feel and have sympathy for this younger generation. God has already claimed they had nothing to do with the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. They've had nothing to do with it. Those people are innocent. And as a matter of fact, I will give them the land. Those people who you said would be preyed upon by the Amorites, I'm going to give the land to them. But you are going to turn around, you're going to go back south, and for 40 years you're going to wander in the desert. Now, when we think of the desert wanderings, we automatically think of God's righteous judgment on that generation for 40 years who fell. But remember, it was a judgment on that generation. It was not a judgment on the next generation. It was not a judgment on the children who would eventually take the land. What in the world are they doing then? Why does God allow the punishment of one generation to be also a punishment on the next? Well, there's a number of ways to answer that. For 40 years, they travel around. One of the ways you can see this is, frankly, the people of God didn't know God. They hadn't known him long enough. They clearly didn't trust in him enough. 
And so God allows them to linger in the wilderness so that for 40 years, for 40 years, in a place that is inhabitable, they can inhabit it because God will bring water from rocks, because God will bring manna from heaven, because God will keep them safe from all of their enemies. For 40 years, he will be a providential father, just as he led them through like a father does a child. So for 40 years, they will experience nothing but that relationship. But what is more is how, when he tells them to go take the promised land, he tells them to take it. So if you notice, you have a map on the back of your sermon outline today. Remember that the people, when they were originally going to take the land, went up to Kadesh Barnea, and they were to look northward. The spies go northward into the land of Israel, or what will be Israel, into the land of the Ammonites. God then tells them, after they rebel, to come back south. But then notice the route he takes before he lets them enter into the land. The shortest route to the land is directly back from whence they've come, back to Kadesh Barnea, and to take the land from the south. Now, we could imply that there's a whole bunch of historical circumstances as to why they didn't do that, but God doesn't do that. Instead, what God does is lead them east and north through territories which they cannot own, through dangers and into territories that they will have to fight for. This is what has led us to the rest of the second chapter and even into the third chapter. There are four incidents related here. The 40 years are skipped by, but these four incidents are related to us. One, they are not to contend with the land of Sire. That was given to the people of Esau. Jacob's older and non-accepted brother. So God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. He does not accept Esau as his own, but he has given Esau land, right? And so as the people are wandering, going to the west would not take them through the land of Esau, but going to the east does take them through the land of Esau. They are not, not to pick a fight with Esau's people, but they are to go on. And as they go on, what does God say? Why are they not to? They are not to because I have given them the land. As they walk, the months that it takes them to walk up to the place where they will take the land, what do they see on their right and on their left? The whole path. They see a land that God has given to one that God didn't love as much as them. They see a God who saw over all things, not just over the people of Israel, not just over the land that God had promised to them, but over all peoples and all countries that I give land out to whom I choose, even those who I do not love as much as you, I have given them the land. Then Lot, notice Lot's people are mentioned next. Lot was not Abraham. Lot was not in the promises. Lot was a tag along as they came out of Ur. More than that, Lot and his daughters did very wicked things to make these people who they were. And nevertheless, notice what he says. You are not to harass Moab or contend with them in battle in verse 9. For I will not give you any of their land for a possession because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. And listen to this parenthetical remark. The Amim formerly lived there. Formerly lived there. A people great and many as tall as the Anakim. 
The same people that the people of Israel looked up into the land when they spied it out and they saw that the Anakim lived there. We can't take the land. Great people lived there. And what does he do? He takes them past a land where people who were just like the Anakim used to live. And he points it out and he says, you know who used to live here, guys? The people who used to live here were just as big and just as mighty as the people you're afraid of. And you know who I gave it to? I gave it to people who I don't love and care about as much as you do. I am the Lord your God. Verse 11, like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. The Horites also lived in Sire formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Again, further down in verse 20. Again, in the land of Moab, it is counted as a land of Rephaim. The Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zazumim, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. He takes them on a longer journey so that he can show them, one, I give land to whom I want to give land, even to people who count less in my heart than you do. And secondly, even the giants who you are afraid of, I have overthrown for people who are not as precious to me as you are. It is a walking demonstration so that the people can be strengthened in their own hearts. This is not punishment for the people of Israel who are going to take the land. It is a lesson for them. It is to strengthen them. It is to bolster their faith and their confidence that God can indeed do what he says. And then what do we have? We have two defeats of two kings. One, the king of Sihon. Secondly, the king of Og. The king of Sihon, like the initial, there's no giants mentioned, but God gives them into his hands. Unlike the other two lands that they've gone through, God does not clear their path they are to call to those people and they are to say, hey, we want to pass through your land. We will buy everything that we need. We will pay you money for all the food that we need. We will pay you money for all the water we need, but let us pass. And God says, I will harden his heart. Verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, will not let us pass. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand. It's a practice run. It's a practice run. This isn't the promised land. It's just King Sihon. But even so, God says, you've seen as I've led you up that eastern trek that I have given lands to people whom I have chosen. And now the king of Sihon will fall. And then the king of Og, the king of Og, who in his own appearance was a Rephaim. He was a giant of the land. So Israel has now dispossessed one land, and the second land that they dispossess is a land that is kinged by a giant. Look in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim, which were already linked to the Anakim. Behold, his bed is a bed of iron. Is, not Rabba, is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length. And it's four cubits, its breadth, according to the common cubit. That's larger than a California king, right? To give you an approximation of how big this man was, Goliath of giant fame, David and Goliath was six cubits tall. 
Now, either this man wanted a disproportionately long bed, or he was bigger than Goliath. And yet he falls to the Israelites. Why? Because God is going before them in battle. There are times in this world, because of the fallen nature of this world, that the sin of the world will hurt you and harm you. Not only will it provide bad examples for you, which then when you come to the Lord, you will have to break. You will have to fight with the sin that has been placed in your life by others who are sinful in and of themselves. But sometimes the world will simply hurt you and harm you. It will give you difficulties. It will give you trials. God does not promise that you will be free from those things, but he does promise that he has a purpose in everything that he gives you, just as he had a purpose in leading the people on a longer trip around that was more dangerous and, and just filled with more difficulties for them. He could have led them straight into the promised land, but instead he leads them around for his own good reasons and for his own good purpose. And Moses says it was to encourage you so that you could see that what you were about to do, God is with you and God is able to do. The book of James says that we are to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness And let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The trials that God gives you is so that when you face bigger and bigger trials, your soul will be steeled. You might grow a callus to the world and you might grow soft to God so that you will be given over to being able to handle more and more difficult things. This is discipline. This is not discipline when you do wrong. This is discipline so that you won't do wrong. This is the discipline of an athlete who spends his days in the gym, working his body, strengthening his heart, and widening his lungs so that when he gets on the bike to bike 150 miles, he can do it in strength so that he doesn't grow weak and feeble when the time comes for him to really be put to the test. This is what your Lord, the God, of the world does for you. He wants to strengthen you, and oftentimes the difficult things that are given to you, the trials of various kinds are done to strengthen you as he has strengthened his own people. And finally, we are to remember the unifying purpose of God. It seems a minor thing, but at the end of chapter 3, verse 18, there were three tribes, or a quarter of a tribe and two other full tribes that will exist outside of the promised land. Reuben and Gad, full tribes, full children of Jacob, will be given their allotment of land to the east of the Jordan River outside the promised land. And half of Manasseh will also be given that land. Manasseh is a half tribe. He is a son of Joseph, counted as a son of Jacob. Don't ask me about the accounting practices there, but there's a half tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. They're half tribes, guy. So they get their allotment of land outside But this is what Moses says to them. And I commanded you at that time, after the the land has been allotted to them, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All of your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel, only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock. I know that you have much livestock shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives you rest to your brothers as to you, and they also 
occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan, then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. That's what he says there. Listen, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, the promise that has come down has not been for you. There is no promise that, that Gad will inherit the land. There was a promise that the sons of Jacob would inherit the land. There is a promise made to Abraham's children that they would inherit the land. So don't think for a second that when you have inherited what you said you were going to inherit, that your job is done. The promise is that the whole will inherit, not the part. Don't think, friends, that God has simply saved you. He has not saved you as an individual. He has. But don't think that that is the full purpose of God for your life. The overall plan of God is not to save you. It is to save a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Every once in a while, we get in this sort of individual state where we think that God is so great and so grand because he saved me. God is so great and so grand because he has saved a multitude of people. The shed blood of the lamb will cover a multitude of people, more than your eyes can ever imagine, more people than you can possibly conjure up in your brain will stand before the throne of God, singing his praises from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You don't get to punch your ticket and then assume that your work is done because you get to rest in the promised land. That's not how this works. It's not how it worked for Reuben. It's not how it worked for Gad. It's not how it works for Manasseh and Christian. It's not how it works for you. You have an obligation to work until the promise is fulfilled. You have an obligation to make the peoples of the world come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether that is an evangelism here or whether it is giving and going into world missions there, it doesn't matter. That is the command that's been handed to us. The purpose of God was not, do not ever think of yourself first and foremost in the promise of God. The promise of God is wide and ever-expanding. It means a promise for the world. Paul is able to go back to Genesis 12 and tell us that that is the gospel. The gospel preached beforehand to Abraham is that I will bless you and make you a blessing to the nations. It is not a blessing that has solely come to you, friend. It is not a blessing so that you might enter in alone. It is a blessing that all might enter in and for us to work fervently until that day comes. It is no wonder, as Matthew portrays Christ as Moses, I've talked about this before, tested in the wilderness, found sure on the promises of God. What does, what does Satan say to him in Matthew? He says, listen, if you can look out, see all the nations, I will give you all the land that you see if you will bow the knee to me. But Christ instead trusts in the promises of God. He then in Matthew 5 leaves the wilderness, goes to a mountain in Israel, climbs the mountain, looks out over his people, and gives them an explanation of the law. 
after his death and resurrection, he then turns around and says, hey guys, when I meet you, I'm going to meet you on a mountain in Galilee. And on that mountain in Galilee, what does he tell them? Go take the land. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. As Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. No longer are they commanded to go into the promised land and put everybody to the sword, but you are to go into the land and you are to make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. That is the better call of Moses. That we, standing on the precipice, are not simply to sit down and say, we have our land good for us, but we are to go and the command of our own better Moses, Jesus Christ himself, and make disciples of every nation, tribe, and tongue to go and infiltrate the entire world with the message of the gospel. That is the task that has been given to us. Remember that unifying purpose of God. Jesus not only sends his disciples out, he also gives them encouragement for the task that they are going to do. Just as Moses, at the end of chapter 3, tells of his own purpose. He says again, I wanted to go in, so I pleaded with God, let me go in. And God says, you're not going to go in, but you are going to turn to Joshua and you are going to encourage him as he goes into the land. Jesus also then is with us today. He doesn't say, do as I have commanded you, but he also says, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Moses cannot go over with his people. Jesus is always with his. He manifests himself among his people to give them strength to encourage. We, fortunately, get a double portion of this this morning both from his word and also from his table. We get to be reminded that not only is Jesus with us because we verbally portray him, because the spirit of God dwells in us, but we get a reminder that Christ is with us as we take his body and drink his blood. Just as food is to strengthen us, so the bread of this table, the body of our Lord, is to strengthen us. This reminds us that Jesus is with us in our unity. He has not forsaken us, but indeed, he has given himself for us. Let us partake, then, in this Thanksgiving meal. Let us thank God that his promises are true and good. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, if anything is useful that has been spoken today, we pray that you will sear it upon our minds upon our hearts. That which is false, which was unhelpful, which was distracting from these truths, we pray that you will scatter as dust in the wind. 
that we might be a people made after your image, seeking after the kingdom of God with all our hearts, that you might be glorified among the nations, that your promises might seem to be true, not because we are great and mighty, not because we do the things that you ask, but because you equip us to do the things you ask, because you are with us, that you might receive the glory for all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.